Mrs. McGillicuddy panted along the platform in the wake of the porter carrying her suitcase. Mrs. McGillicuddy was short and stout. The porter was tall and free-striding. In addition, Mrs. McGillicuddy was burdened with a large quantity of parcels, the result of a day's Christmas shopping. The race was, therefore, an uneven one, and the porter turned the corner at the end of the platform whilst Mrs. McGillicuddy was still coming up the straight. Number one platform was not at the moment unduly crowded, since a train had just gone out, but in the no-man's land beyond, a milling crowd was rushing in several directions at once, to and from undergrounds, left luggage offices, tea rooms and quarry offices, indicator boards, and the two outlets, arrival and departure, to the outside world. Mrs. McGillicuddy and her parcels were buffeted to and fro, but she arrived eventually at the entrance to number three platform and deposited one parcel at her feet while she searched her bag for the ticket that would enable her to pass the stern, uniformed guardian at the gate. At that moment a voice, raucous yet refined, burst into speech over her head. The train standing at platform three, the voice told her, is the 450 for Brackhampton, Milchester, Waverton, Carville Junction, Roxeter, and stations to Chadmouth. Passengers for Brackhampton and Milchester travel at the rear of the train. Passengers for Vainkey change at Roxeter. The voice shut itself off with a click and then reopened conversation by announcing the arrival at Platform 9 of the 4.35 from Birmingham and Wolverhampton. Mrs. McGillicuddy found her ticket and presented it. The man clipped it and murmured, On the right, rear portion. Mrs. McGillicuddy padded up the platform and found her porter looking bored and staring into space outside the door of a third-class carriage. Here you are, lady. I'm travelling first class, said Mrs. McGillicuddy. You didn't say so, grumbled the porter. His eyes swept her masculine-looking pepper-and-salt tweed coat disparagingly. Mrs. McGillicuddy, who had said so, didn't argue the point. She was sadly out of breath. The porter retrieved the suitcase and marched with it to the adjoining coach where Mrs. McGillicuddy was installed in solitary splendour. The 450 was not much patronised, the first-class clientele preferring either the faster morning express or the 640 with dining car. Mrs. McGillicuddy handed the porter his tip, which he received with disappointment, clearly considering it more applicable to third-class and to first-class travel. Mrs. McGillicuddy, though prepared to spend money uncomfortable travel after a night journey from the north and a day's feverish shopping, was at no time an extravagant tipper. She settled herself back on the plush cushions with a sigh, and opened a magazine. Five minutes later, whistles blew and the train started. The magazine slipped from Mrs. McGillicuddy's hand, her head dropped sideways. Three minutes later, she was asleep. She slept for thirty-five minutes and awoke refreshed. Resettling her hat, which had slipped askew, she sat up and looked out of the window at what she could see of the flying countryside. 
It was quite dark now, a dreary, misty December day. Christmas was only five days ahead. London had been dark and dreary. The country was no less so, though occasionally rendered cheerful with its constant clusters of lights as the train flashed through towns and stations. Serving last tea now, said an attendant, whisking open the corridor door like a gin. Mrs. McGillicuddy had already partaken of tea at a large department store. She was for the moment amply nourished. The attendant went on down the corridor, uttering his monotonous cry. Mrs. McGillicuddy looked up at the rack where her various parcels reposed with a pleased expression. The face towels had been excellent value, and just what Margaret wanted. The space gun for Robbie and the rabbit for Jean were highly satisfactory, and that evening coatee was just the thing she herself needed, warm but dressy. The pullover for Hector, too. Her mind dwelt with approval on the soundness of her purchases. Her satisfied gaze returned to the window. A train travelling in the opposite direction rushed by with a screech, making the windows rattle and causing her to start. The train clattered over points and passed through a station. Then it began suddenly to slow down, presumably in obedience to a signal. For some minutes it crawled along, then stopped, and presently began to move forward again. Another up-train passed them, though with less vehemence than the first one. The train gathered speed again. At that moment, another train, also on the down line, swerved inwards towards them for a moment with almost alarming effect. For a time, the two trains ran parallel, now one gaining a little, now the other. Mrs. McGillicuddy looked from her window through the windows of the parallel carriages. Most of the blinds were down, but occasionally the occupants of the carriages were visible. The other train was not very full, and there were many empty carriages. At the moment when the two trains gave the illusion of being stationary, a blind in one of the carriages flew up with a snap. Mrs. McGillicuddy looked into the lighted first-class carriage that was only a few feet away. Then she drew her breath with a gasp, and half rose to her feet. Standing with his back to the window and to her was a man. His hands were round the throat of a woman who faced him, and he was slowly, remorselessly, strangling her. Her eyes were starting from their sockets, her face was purple and congested. As Mrs. McGillicuddy watched, fascinated, the end came. The body went limp and crumpled in the man's hands. At the same moment, Mrs. McGillicuddy's train slowed down again, and the other began to gain speed. It passed forward, and a moment or two later it had vanished from sight. Almost automatically, Mrs. McGillicuddy's hand went up to the communication cord, then paused, irresolute. After all, what use would it be ringing the cord of the train in which she was travelling? The horror of what she had seen at such close quarters and the unusual circumstances made her feel paralysed. Some immediate action was necessary. But what? The door of her compartment was drawn back and a ticket collector said, Ticket, please. Mrs. McGillicuddy turned to him with vehemence. A woman has been strangled, she said, in a train that has just passed. I saw it. The ticket collector looked at her doubtfully. 
I beg your pardon, madam? A man strangled a woman in a train. I saw it through there. She pointed to the window. The ticket collector looked extremely doubtful. Strangled, he said disbelievingly. Yes, strangled. I saw it, I tell you. You must do something at once. The ticket collector coughed apologetically. Well, uh, <clears throat> you don't think, madam, you may have had a little nap, and uh, he broke off tactfully. I have had a nap, but if you think this was a dream, you're quite wrong. I saw it, I tell you. The ticket collector's eyes dropped to the open magazine lying on the seat. On the exposed page was a girl being strangled while a man with a revolver threatened the pair from an open doorway. He said persuasively, Now, don't you think, madam, that you've been reading an exciting story? You just dropped off and awaking a little confused. But Mrs. McGillicuddy interrupted him. I saw it, she said. I was as wide awake as you are. And I looked out of the window into the window of the train alongside, and a man was strangling a woman. And what I want to know is, what are you going to do about it? Uh, well, madam, you're going to do something, I suppose. The ticket collector sighed reluctantly and glanced at his watch. We shall be in Brackhampton in exactly seven minutes. I'll report what you've told me. But in what direction was the train you mentioned going? This direction, of course. You don't suppose I'd have been able to see all this if a train had flashed past going in the other direction? The ticket collector looked as though he thought Mrs. McGillicuddy was quite capable of seeing anything, anywhere, as the fancy took her. But he remained polite. You can rely on me, madam, he said. I'll report your statement. Perhaps I might have your name and address, just in case.'